Hi, this is Pastor Paul Steele from Bethlehem Church in Austin, Minnesota. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And as we open the Bible together, my prayer is that this will be just the right message for this time in your life. May it be a blessing to you in this Advent season. Now, on to the sermon. We are in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 67 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Ever since there's been cars, it seems like people have been, civil engineers and the like, have been trying to figure out how do you slow people down in residential areas. And we've tried a lot of different things, right? We have signs. We have flashing lights and all this stuff. But the problem is with all those things, it depends on people's obedience to what the sign says, to what the light is trying to tell you to do. And so one Dutch city, the city of Delft in the 1960s, came up with this idea. And it's called... uh, where is it at here? Wolverin. Uh, Wolverin, I think. I'm no good at, at other, uh, other pronouncing. But the idea, it's translated living yards. Living yards. And so what they've done is that they've taken their yards and have extended them out into streets. They've raised up other spots. So basically, the idea is not only do you extend the living space for people, out their outside living space, but you kind of create an obstacle course for people as they're driving down the streets, which forces them to slow down. So by, the, by uh, 1967, the Dutch government okayed this plan throughout their country. And the idea has grown and has been implemented in Germany, in uh, Japan, Sweden, France, Israel, Austria, Switzerland. So by the 1990s, there were more than uh, 3,500 of these shared streets. And it's even been uh, tried here in America in a, in, a, in a few cities. And so with all these twists and turns and these obstacle courses, what's happened is that drivers are forced to slow down to basically walking speed around nine miles per hour, which has greatly reduced traffic, area, traffic accidents in those areas. Now, the reason that I tell you all of this is that I think sometimes following God can be like going through a wound nerve Because it's like we're driving on the interstate, speeding on the interstate. And all of a sudden you get to this this residential area and you're forced to slow down. Now you're you're driving and and there you you have you there's a bench, there's a, a guy smoking meat out there, you know, like and like you have to maneuver all through there and you slow down. And as we're following God, I think sometimes we we want to go full steam ahead. 
Like, hey, we, we want to go, God. We want to get there as fast as we can. And God's saying, no, let's just slow down a little bit. Let's take our time. Let's prepare. And so it's very easy to start getting impatient with God. God had given Israel all these promises about a Messiah, about redemption, about freedom. And yet they experienced empire after empire coming to conquer them. And from the last prophecy that Malachi prophesied to the writing of the New Testament, there's 400 years of waiting. God, where are you? What are you up to? What is happening? Just like the Jews there at the beginning of the first century waited and hoped and wondering what God was up to, we find ourselves in a period of waiting You know, and it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to look around and and see things that we don't approve of. It's easy to wonder, God, where are you? Are you even real? Are you do you care what's happening? When will you come back? And since Jesus isn't coming back, some people want us to question. Is Jesus who he really says he is? Maybe he was just a good teacher who's had a lot of good things to say. Maybe he didn't even exist. And so we find ourselves, I think, very much like the people we read about at the beginning of the Gospels who are waiting and wondering about where God is what God is up to. I think this is why Advent is such an important part of our rhythm of life as we follow Jesus. Because it's this yearly reminder to us that God keeps his promises. The delay might be great. The delay might be more than what we were expecting but God keeps his promises. So we can sympathize with the, with the Jews as they waited for the Messiah, as we wait for Jesus to return. And so at this time of Advent, what we should remember, what we should take away is this, that we are hopeful about the second coming of Jesus. Because God kept his promise to send the Messiah. We can be hopeful about the second coming of Jesus because God kept his promise to send the Messiah. And that's why my faith is all built upon Jesus, upon his life, upon his death, upon his resurrection. Because I can be confident about Jesus. Even in this period of waiting, I can be confident about his return to come and make everything right. 
And so during this time of waiting, there was an old priest by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah was married to Elizabeth. They were both from uh, the, the line of Aaron. So they had a priestly heritage. And yet they found themselves childless. Something that they prayed about. Something that they asked God to change. But nothing happened. Until one day, Zechariah and his section of priests went to Jerusalem to have their turn at serving in the temple. And one of the duties of the priest would be to every day to go into the Holy of Holies to, do, uh, to burn incense. Most likely, they burnt incense to kind of cover up the smell of all the sacrifices that were offered. And so, because only one person was needed, and there were all these priests, they would draw lots to see who would go in. And it was an honor because there, it could very well be that you never were chosen. You never drew the lot. It could be you never went into the Holy of Holies. And on this day, Zechariah drew the lot. So, and as he's in there, as he's burning incense, an angel shows up. And he tells Zechariah that things are about to change. That God is going to give him and Elizabeth a child. Your prayer has been heard. And Zechariah says, how can I be sure? How can I know that this is going to happen? And the angel says, hey, my name is Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And so here's your sign. You want a sign that this is going to be happening? Hey, you're not going to be able to talk. You're not going to be able to talk until all this has been accomplished. Now that Greek word that talks about speechlessness could also apply to the fact that he couldn't hear. At least he couldn't talk, but it could also mean that he was deaf during this time as well. Like he was just totally communication-wise, shut off from the rest of the world. And he went out of that, the Holy of Holies. People were wanting to know, hey, what in the world is going on? And he couldn't, because he took too, so long. It doesn't take long to burn the incense. Why is this guy taking so long? He comes out. He can't speak. He motions. People understood, like, hey, he saw a great sign. And when their term was done, he went back home and communicated somehow, some way to Elizabeth, hey, this is what's promised to us. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and there is that excitement about what is happening. Things are about to change. And so, after nine months, 
the son is born. Who Gabriel says, I forgot to mention this, because this is kind of crucial. Gabriel says, you shall name him John. John means Yahweh is gracious. You should name him John. That is what you are to do. So the baby is born, and the community gathers for the, for the circumcision, for the naming. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. Oh, wait. <laughs> we're not. Uh, so, so they come together, circumcision, naming. Elizabeth says, hey, his name's going to be John. The community says, no, it can't be John. There's nobody in your family with that name. That's not a family name. Let's name him after his father, Zechariah. That's what we're going to do. And Elizabeth insists, no, his name's going to be John. They finally motion. This is where I think Zechariah can't hear because they motion, hey, what do you think, Zechariah? What should his name be? And he he motions for a writing tablet. So they had these pieces of, of wood that were covered with wax. And then they took a stylus and they would write in them. And then that way, then, then you could take notes, you could, you could write, but then after that, you could heat it back up and smooth it down so you could reuse these. So he asked for a writing tablet and he says his name's going to be John. And when he confirms this, when he declares this is what his name is, he's able to speak. And the very first thing that he does as he speaks is he praises God. And that's where we pick it up here in verse 67. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has set sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. So the first words out of Zechariah's mouth after not being able to speak for nine months is praise and prophecy. And a lot of times, these two things are mixed. That's what the book of Psalms is full of, praise and prophecy. And Zechariah's song here is inspired, Luke says, by the Holy Spirit and is filled with prophetic words. 
Zechariah begins by declaring that God is on the move. That the period of waiting and hoping is over. And notice the words that, that Zechariah uses here. Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior. He's not talking about this is going to happen. He is talking about the present. He is talking about this is what God has done. God is on the move. He is working. He is bringing redemption. And that word redemption would remind the people hearing what Zechariah is saying of God redeeming Israel out of Egypt. It is reminding them, it is telling them that they can count on God because God has acted on their behalf in the past. He has redeemed them. He has saved them from their enemies. And so they can trust in God. Regardless of what the circumstances of their life are right now, they can trust in God because God has helped them. And right now, he is beginning to be at work again. Because God keeps his promises. Zechariah says this is all because God took this covenantal oath. An oath to our ancestor Abraham. An oath we find in Genesis chapter 12, which is the key to the entire scripture. Where God makes a promise to Abraham that his descendants will bless all the nations of the earth. God is at, on the move. He is at work. And he is going to accomplish. He is going to do what he says. He's going to keep his promises. And this Messiah, this Savior, this one who is going to come in the line of David with power. So that's that whole imagery of the horn. The horn in Scripture means that of victory because a bull, when it gores you, will then lift its head up in victory. The lifted horn of might and of power. The horn from David. This guy is the king that they've waited for. The one in the line of David. They have waited and he is going to create an environment where God's people can worship him without fear from his enemies. You don't have to fear those around you anymore because God is mighty. God is at work. God is making the difference. And then Zechariah shifts. He says, and you, my little son, you, this little baby who was born eight days earlier, you are going to be called a prophet of the Most High God. This is your role. This is what you are going to do. You are going to prepare the way for the Messiah. This people, Israel, 
They've known the words. They've known the law. They've probably more faithful to God right now in their period of waiting than they've ever had been before. But they still didn't quite understand what God was up to. There were still people in need of repentance, and that is John's job as prophet, to call them back to repentance, to call them to follow God, to return to the law, to repent, and come back to God. So there are a couple of things I want to point out here in in these last few verses of this prophecy. First of all, in verse 28, or 78, he says, because God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, because God's tender mercy. This is synonymous with the Old Testament idea of hesed. Hesed is God's covenant love. It's the reason why God makes covenant with people. And the God that we worship, the God that we find in the pages of Scripture, is a God who makes covenant. He makes promises. He makes these these oaths to his people. No other God does that. The God of the Bible does. And he does it because of his hased, his tender mercy, his covenant love. He cares about us. He cares about his people. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we can count on God to keep his promises. It means that no matter what our circumstances may tell us, God has not abandoned us. It means that God cares about us. And so we can count on him. We can turn to him for for help. We can be confident that one day God is going to make everything right. And so we put our faith in him. God will keep his promises because of his tender mercy and his covenant love. And then verse 79, which flows out of the last part of verse 78 The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. This is going to be a call back for the people hearing this to what we looked at last week, to Isaiah's prophecy we read in in Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So Zechariah is saying, this prophecy that God, this promise that God made through Isaiah so long ago, it is happening. It's being fulfilled right now. The light is coming. And John, this little baby, Zechariah's son, is going to make the way for the light. That is his job. That is his responsibility. So that the way might be prepared. 
for that wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the, uh, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These titles that we talked about last week that, that showed that this isn't just anybody. This is, this is a person who is representing God, who is coming in God's presence. This is who's going to keep this covenant. This is who's going to come and set Israel free. And he's going to act with God's presence on him. And where is the Messiah going to lead the people? Zechariah says, he will guide us to the path of peace. And remember, peace within the biblical context is not just the absence of conflict. It's harmony. It's working together. Part of the picture we should have are two enemies that not only stop their fighting, but they come together to work with one another, to build mutually beneficial lives. He is going to lead us to the path, path of peace where we have harmony and a relationship with God once again. Where we have harmony with one another. That's one of the great messages of the gospel of the New Testament, right? Paul will say in a couple different places, in Christ Jesus, there's no longer slave and free. Jew and Gentile. Barbarian, Scythian, male and female, all those areas of conflict, all those, those barriers that have been erected, they're no longer matter within Christ Jesus because he is bringing peace and harmony to his kingdom, to his people. And we experience peace within ourselves. That inner conflict of right and wrong, of what we should be doing of guilt and shame and all that, that worry, all that we experience, God comes and he settles. He gives us a sense of calm. He gives us a sense of hope. He gives us a sense of direction. God's people are people of peace because we follow the prince of peace. And then this passage ends with what we might just think is kind of a throwaway line. Verse 80, John grew up and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to lead Israel. Over and over again, we see people whom God chooses go into the wilderness to prepare for their time of ministry. And it's speculated because Zechariah and Elizabeth were old when they had John, that they died. And so John went to one of the communities out there, um, one of the Essine communities, a community where, according to Gabriel's instructions, he would not 
drink wine or beer or alcoholic beverage, that he would be set apart because that's what they were concerned with. And in that place, he was prepared for the ministry, this prophetic ministry that God had given to him. But here's the... This prophecy of Zechariah had for the people at the birth of his son was that God was at work. That's what it all centers around. God is at work. It may not seem like it, but things are about to change. And so here's the bottom line for us this morning. God is at work to accomplish his plan. God is at work to accomplish his plan. Just as Zechariah and the whole nation of Israel was unaware of what God was doing leading up to John's birth, we are unaware of what God is doing right now. But I can guarantee you God is at work. He's at work transforming people. He's at work saving people. He's at work calling people to follow Jesus. Just because we can't see, it doesn't mean that God isn't doing something. And Advent reminds us that God is at work. And we patiently wait for him to accomplish his plan of salvation. Right? God has had a plan from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first mention of the Messiah, the snake crusher, the one who will come and crush the head of the snake. Even though he will be wounded with a fatal blow himself in the process. It's been a long time since that prophecy was uttered been like 1200 years since God made a a covenant with with Abraham and all through that God is working he's had a plan he's had a plan that he himself would come and rescue his people and so God is at work he's doing his part to accomplish his plan even though we may not always see it. So our challenge this week is this. To write down the reasons why you are confident that God is at work in this world. Why are you confident that God is at work? We all have different reasons. We all have different perspectives. But it's crucial, I think, for us to to come up with those reasons, to think about them. Because when the going gets tough, when the world is trying to convince us that God uh, is absent, God doesn't even exist, we need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to know the reasons for the hope that we have. So think about why are you confident that God is at work in this world right now? Why we can have hope in Jesus. Advent is the season where we reflect on the first coming of Jesus as a way to prepare our hearts 
for his return. And even if your life might be filled with darkness, I, I hope that you will be encouraged because you remember that we have hope because God keeps his promises, because God kept his promise to send the Messiah the first time. We can be confident that Jesus will return and make everything right. May God continue to bless you.